This is the St. Charles History Chronicle, episode 2305. Growing up in St. Charles in the 1950s, with Bob Matson. Bill Ehlers, interviewer. Brought to you by the St. Charles History Museum in St. Charles, Illinois. Hi, and welcome to the St. Charles History Chronicle podcast. My name is Steve Gibson. I'm board president here at the St. Charles History Museum. And today I thought we'd take a little time out to listen to a oral history that was done by our oral history facilitator, Bill Ehlers, with uh, Board Emeritus Bob Matson. Uh, Bob has been with the History Museum for decades. Um, he's known throughout the St. Charles community. And Bill sat down with him a few weeks back and did a, uh, a very long um comprehensive uh, oral history, and I thought I'd pull out a little bit here and where Bob talks about growing up in St. Charles and um, uh, what it was like to go to high school and some of the other things in his life and play that for you today. So now from St. Charles History Chronicle, here's Bob Matson, board member emeritus. Bob, can you tell me what it was Paint a picture of what St. Charles was like growing up. Okay. Um, well, it was a wonderful little town. Of course, at the age of three or four, I probably didn't realize that. But anyway, we uh, we stayed on State Street, which was about four houses away from our Colonial Ice Cream started their factory. And my mom used to... Uh, take us twins downtown in a double buggy. And in those days, you know, there weren't too many twins, so people would kind of stop and say, oh, we've got to look at those kids, you know, and which one is which? Well, who, you know, can you tell the difference and things like that. So, yeah, there was a, a fellow in St. Charles too who owned the Gardner's Bakery store. And actually his dad owned it, but Carl was probably in his 20s at that time or something, but he took a liking to photographing a lot of people. And I don't know how many hundreds of people in St. Charles he took photographs of. But he that was his hobby. And in fact, when Dick and I were one year old, he took a picture of us. And he took a picture of us every year on our birthdays and from then till we were about 20 years old. Um, I have most of those pictures every year. Why did he do it? I don't know. You know, it was just one of those things that he loved to take pictures of people. But to get back to, you know, really growing up in St. Charles, um, my folks bought a lot on 4th Street in St. Charles on the 1200 block and had a suite by the name of Johnson building a, a Cape Cod house. It was a three-bedroom. Uh, when my grandpa came to live with us, he lived in uh, downstairs bedroom, my brother and I were upstairs in a bedroom and my parents in another bedroom. Dick and I were twins. We slept in the same bed together. When my brother came along, the younger brother, six years later, he was in the same bedroom. So there was three of us boys together in one bedroom, which was okay, you know. A lot of people had a lot of kids growing up together, sleeping in bedrooms, which was fight. Um, what did we do as kids? Oh, man, we had a ball. I mean, we just, we always played kick the can, red light, uh, all over the neighborhood. You're running here and there through 
people's yards, just trying to not get caught to be it next. Uh, we had, frankly, all boys in our neighborhood. For some unknown reason, I know the water of St. Charles was just producing boys. And there was Dick Noreen, Richter Boys, Jim, and uh, Ron. was Ron Carlson. There was uh, Artie Tony. Uh, Bob Mann lived a block away from me. There was the Soderquist boys who were all into uh, building roads and houses. And the Dreesons were there, too. They're a little bit older than my cousin and I. I can remember uh, one time uh, the youngest Soderquist, his name was Rod, and Rod said, Hey, you guys want to learn how to smoke? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Rod, well... Let's go out of the cornfield and then get some silk and we'll roll it up in a piece of paper and you just, you know, and I light it and you just suck in real deep, you know. So after he lit it, we each took a, a sip or a, a sip of suck in and, you know, we got a little bit of flame, I think. <laughs> well, that was the end of our career of smoking. And I remember Rod saying, hey, you want to hear a dirty joke? Oh, yeah, sure, you know maybe 12, 13, he says, well, Mary Grump sat on a stump. The grass grew long and tickled her bump, bump, bump. Now, it wasn't a dirty joke, but anyway, it was their first joke I think we ever heard. Um, what did we do for enjoyment? Well, we built a lot of underground forts. We actually put a roof over them, the hell, and you could tunnel down in, and we had candles in there. We, uh, just that, you know, was like home away from home, not really, but it was a good place to, to get away, and there was three or four of us that would always dig an underground fort. We had one two doors from our, down from our house because it was an empty lot. Uh, most of the, the kids, you know, we just wore jeans. What did we, you know, did we get dirty? Sure, we got dirty a lot of times, you know, parents care not too much did we have ours uh yeah because there was in that particular time there was a polio epidemic and parents said you know how how are children getting polio is it contagious well they thought yeah it was contagious so you know you weren't allowed to go in the swimming pool anymore you weren't allowed to play with your your buddies so sometimes you just and I remember the minor kids that lived across the street. We just take a ball and roll the ball, the ball across the street, and they'd roll it back to us. I mean, that was we didn't want to get in contact with them. So apparently, that was you know our entertainment for the time. You know, after that got over with, uh, as far as what did we do? Well, in the winter, we just loved to to toboggan and and stuff like that. And down at the Mount Saint Mary Academy, which was the girls. Catholic school in St. Charles on the west side of of 31. There was a steep hill that went down, and we could slide, sled down that to 31. And there weren't hardly any cars then, so you could really go all the way into 31 and not have to worry about traffic and stuff. And we'd stay down there and play there, and that was probably half a mile away. But we'd stay there and play until we couldn't hardly walk anymore or it was too cold, so I didn't get home because my chocolate. 
a lot of the guys, the young guys, you know, when we were starting in junior high and high school, I, I wouldn't say a, a half, but at least a third of our kids lived on farms and went to our schools. And so in the spring and the fall, some of them would have to get off work for, for get off school for two or three days to help with chores, to plant, to bring in the crops in the fall. Some of those guys in town, as far as doing a job or doing something later on, uh, and we had whole enough to do things, there was paper routes. And uh, there was actually three different companies. There was the Elgin Courier News, and there was the Aurora Beacon News, and then the uh, one out of Chicago, or New York, I mean, not Chicago, yeah. It was a bigger paper, but you would actually take the paper itself and you would roll it up and tuck in the top so that it couldn't open. And so we each had a route, depending on the size. I think mine was one of the biggest, 130 papers. Mine was on 3rd Street and uh, 4th Street, so you had to go up a hill first to get to, to the to the houses. Anyway, you'd, you had a big bag, which was a cloth bag that you'd put all the papers in, and then you had a big wire basket in the front of your handlebars, and you'd put the, the uh, cloth bag into those wire to hold it. So it would really fill up quite a large area in front of your handlebars, and you know there was a lot of weight to it, so you had to be careful when you're riding your bike. But anyway, you'd go along and yeah, there's a house over here, and you knew you had to know your routes. You had to know what paper went where. So you'd, when you'd take it, you'd just throw it as far as you could and try to get it close to the porch. Well, naturally, you go out around Christmas time, you thought, hey, maybe I could get a tip if I brought it in a little closer. Maybe if I looked between the storm door, you know, that might work. So, and some people were very nice. They'd give you an extra bucket. Well, a buck half for 50 cents. The buck was a lot in those days. Some people would even uh, have cookies for you. So that was a way of getting some money. I think I made $3.50 for uh, every night to go deliver papers. And he'd start usually sometime around 3 o'clock or so because they, they had a newsstand, which was right by City Hall, and they'd bring the papers in there, and we had these long benches, and that's where you would get your, be distributed into the papers, and then you would fold them up and put them in your bag, as I said, and then you'd start out wherever your route started, and then followed up wherever you were. Of course, in the winter, sometimes when there was so much snow, it was really pretty hard to get through the snow with a bike. Because sometimes, you know, you could swing that around your shoulder and carry it. Uh, if the snow got too deep, once in a while you get your mom or somebody to give you a ride for a while, because yeah, it it got pretty pretty heavy and got pretty pretty cold at it sometimes. So that was somewhat of a chore at times. Anyway, uh, those were some of the chores that we did. We mowed grass in the, two in the summertime for people. Uh, was the old hand push mower, so it was called electric mower. Uh, if the person was fairly nice sometimes you know you get 50 cents from all in the grass and then bring you a hot up or something which you know if you see white barbs that was always they always look 
look forward to mowing that kind of grass that you'd get a old tree too. Then there was a store on 3rd Street, and every town, and especially St. Charles, had little stores. There was one out in we call it Belgium Town, and then there was Polly's, which was up by the junior high or high school, and then there was one on 3rd Street. And we'd just go in there, and then they would, butcher would warm the place, would slice off some meat, and we'd have, you know, three or four pieces of meat. We'd get some kale pop or something called near beer, which wasn't really beer, but we thought, you know, it was a big deal because we're drinking some kind of beer, but it wasn't. And we'd sit on the steps and just shoot the breeze and talk and eat and we all drunk rolling our bikes, you know, everywhere we went. And then we'd probably sit and talk, you know, well, what do you like? What girlfriend do you want? You know, and, you know, can we go over and see her sometime or, you know, play on the next day? So it, we spent a lot of time, you know, right down bites, um, putting foxtails on the handlebars, Try to make it look better. Put a uh, hexter reflector on the back, you know. So just to make your bike a little different than the next guy's bike. Uh, I remember that was right after the war, World War II. So the bikes weren't too popular. Then started into manufacturing too many. In fact, when I was a paper boy, uh, we collected money for uh, polio, and uh, on our route. For some of the papers, we'd actually knock on the doors and say, you know, your month is paid up this month, but you owe for next month. You know, would you pay for that bill? And if if you did, then you'd, you know, I don't know, he might make a little extra money doing that. But in the meantime, I know we were collecting for the polio drive, just, you know, as money to, to come in to pay for research in polio. And... Somehow, I lucked out. I collected the most money. <laughs> so, actually, I was awarded a, a bike, so I didn't have to buy my own bike. But, you know, a lot of times, you know, us kids, we made our own money, bought our own bikes. You know, we didn't ask mom and dad for that because a lot of parents couldn't actually afford to even buy a bike for, for their kids. Yeah, at Christmas time, you know, what were you, what kind of presents did you get? Well, you know, you had one or two things you kind of liked and you put it on a list and, you know, usually your mom and dad could afford those as he would get them. And then always across the street, the Maynards lived. There was two boys. Ralph was a year younger than us and Jim was two years older. And then they had another boy who was six years younger. But anyway, Christmas was a big deal. I'm like, after you opened your presents, you had to call the Mitre Boys, which was Jim and Ralph, and say, what did you get for Christmas? I got this, I got that. You know, it was just like, wow, this was something, you know, to know what the other guys got. And one time, Jim, I don't know when it was, but it was shortly before Christmas, he said to my brother and I, he said, do you really still believe in Santa Claus? Well, of course we do. Well, think about it, guys. You know, how could Santa get down the chimney? Plus, how could he get back up the chimney? Well, you know, he didn't think about those things, you know. And finally, you know, he spoiled it. He said, well, it's got to be your mom or dad, you know. So, anyway, for a long time, a lot of us believed that Santa Claus 
still do to some degree. <laughs> and uh, let's see if there's anything else that I can think of. Hole. Yeah. A lot of us guys like to hunt pheasants and rabbits. And our dad would take us out and show us how to shoot a gun, the safety precautions of, you know, he always note from the guy to the right to the, and the left of you, you never get ahead of each other. You all kind of stay together in a single line going through the cornfield and bean field or whatever. And uh, so you learn from your parents how to use a gun and, and how to be careful with a gun. So there was about three or four of us guys that actually hunted while we lived in my brother and I lived on Trawfell, South 4th Street, and we hunted all the way to the high school, which was on 7th and Main Street. And each one of us had a locker in in our high school, and we'd hunt all the way to the school, take our shotguns, put them in the lockers. The teachers knew that we had guns, <clears throat> and they didn't say anything. You know, it was okay. In fact, we actually had a rifle club in the in in the school where you could check out a study hall, go get the rifle, walk through the halls, go to the rifle room, no instructor, and practice shooting. So, you know, things were it. It's just, uh, nobody locked their cars, doors, or their their homes. Mr. Thompson, who was superintendent of the schools, you'd see him in the hall, he'd stop and talk to you, he had time for you. The teachers all seemed like they were into teaching and into, you know, not just teaching, but try to help you grow up and to be better citizens, and I guess is a good way of putting it. It just was, was just a wonderful time, and we enjoyed the teachers. I think they enjoyed us. I know one time we did a prank on one teacher, which I felt very bad about later on in life. Um, because some of those kids, you know, we, we really didn't care about school to some degree. Um, one other fellow says, well, okay, when the teacher comes back in, in the room from uh, lunch break at 20 after 2 or something like that, all of us fall off our chairs. You know, well, how stupid can you be? We all did it, you know. She actually left and was crying. And, I, I, you know, later on I thought, you know, I wish that was man enough to, and after a few years I kind of out of school, I had enough guts to go back and say, you know, I think that was stupid and I'm really sorry for what I did. <laughs> Some of the things that we really enjoyed was swimming and we'd swim actually in the Fox River and Pearson's Creek and Pearson's Creek didn't have any homes at that time built up in it and at the portion of the creek there was an old quarry, and it became kind of a swimming hole for some of those kids. So we would actually swim there, too. And when we swim in the river, one of the fellows I grew up with, his grandpa, worked at the boathouse on the uh, east side. There was two boathouses in St. Charles at the time, one on the west side, one on the east side. You could rent a canoe or a just a regular rowboat. She was older. The guys had speedboats, which was a big deal. Oh, but because we knew this one guy whose grandpa worked at the boathouse, we should go up and get a old town canoe anytime we wanted, and we didn't have to pay for it. 
Well, we'd cattle up park there and then pass the park on to the golf course. And sometimes we'd actually jump out of the canoe or reach over and try to find golf balls that were overshot by the green. And then one day the uh, pro came out and he said, Hey, guys, those are my balls. We said, No, they're not. If they come in the river, they're anybody's. <laughs> um, and then I don't know how kids, why we did it, but go up to, we call it Jones's Woods, because I guess it was Jones's Woods at one time on Forward growing up. <clears throat> there were actually some camps up there that people from Chicago would come and stay in during the summer. But, um, Pretty much most of those were all gone. But anyway, there wasn't hardly anybody out there. There'd just be a, us guys in a canoe or two. And one guy would say, hey, let's take our swimming off, suits off, and, and it's swimming renewed. So we did that for, you know, just a kick, as guys would do. <clears throat> and one fella, the guy that his grandpa owned, or worked at a boathouse, he lost his swimming suit somehow. This guy standing with Perry and that Petabu Dick and said to Perry, Give me your swimming suit. He said, Well, why shouldn't I give you my swimming suit? Because he said, Because I want it. So he, Dick was the guy that's grandpa that had the bulldogs. Dick put on his swimming suit and Perry sat there, his little short, kind of stubby guy. And we put him in the center of the canoe and went kind of close to Potawatomi Park, just battling. And he did he just sit there, you know, kind of cover himself up and say, I don't care, I don't care. <laughs> it's just, this, you know, stupid things like that. Another thing, the railroad trestle went across the, the river there, and some guys would say, hey, you know, that's a good way to get back and forth. You know, you don't have to go all the way into town. Well, what if a train came? Well, I don't know, maybe you could jump, or you could climb off the side and Try to go down and hold on, you know, until the train went by, but it would shake like crazy. Well, I never got caught up there, but I remember one time they asked this one guy, Doug Miles, is a few years younger than us. They said, Hey, Doug, for a box of 22 shorts, that was 22 rifle shells, would you jump off the bridge? Railroad bridge? Well, hell of a Well, why not you think about it? They say, Yeah, I will. So, I guess he got up enough nerve when the next day he jumped off. Both. The, it wasn't too deep. It was maybe six feet deep there at the most, you know, and that was quite a quite a ways up, but he landed okay and, and did all right. Like the there's a box of shells before that. There was another area when I was in junior high with my buddy. You could, well, there's a trail called Lamb's Trail that would wind around and go underneath the railroad trestle and went by the boathouse and would take you up just to St. Charles or to the park itself. So people were always walking underneath there. Well, you could climb up underneath the railroad, up a trestle there, and somehow you could see down, but they couldn't really see you up, up where we were because there's enough timbers and stuff. And we just take little pebbles or little rocks and just kind of try and drop them on people as they walk by, you know, and they... What the heck does that come from, you know, and they couldn't see us. And then somebody got the idea that Rumble River Crook cigars were the thing to have. 
what were they? Well, they were cigars, they were soaked in rum, and they were kind of curved, and they called them Rock River Crooks. Well, another buddy in my junior high, we decided, we'll sit up there at the railroad trestle and we'll have smoke a cigar. This was during our noon lunch break. Went up to, I went back to school and yell around me. She's going, I smell smoke. Somebody been smoking? Lieutenant, <laughs> you know, crouched down like it wasn't me, you know, but it was me. Anyway, and the teacher was Mrs. Mann, who was one of my buddy's best, well, he, he was one of my best friends, and his mom was the teacher. Anyway, I don't know if I ever got back to the hopes or not. A lot of kids did golf. Well, I shouldn't say did golf. They, they caddied for golf and would walk up to the Sanchez Country Cup and make a few dollars caddying that way. Okay, Bob, tell me, you know, after you got out of high school and, and kind of the direction you wanted to go in or did go in. Uh, let me just give you a little something uh, before that, too. In high school, we did have a lot of clubs, a lot of organizations, and we only had three athletics. We had baseball, track, or football. And in 19... 19- 53, St. Charles had never won the Little Seven Conference track meet. We won it that year in 1953. I was a sophomore, and uh, weren't too many guys out for track, and apparently they needed somebody to run the mile, even though I was a younger guy. They said, you're going to run the mile. Okay, well, the whole thing is we did. We beat Wheaton out just by the last uh couple seconds, I should say, in the relay, and they probably beat us 55 to nothing, probably in football. But anyway, we won that for three years straight, which was, I don't know, kind of an accomplishment. Um, I was thinking, you know, what am I going to do when I get out of school? A lot of my buddies, you know, they were pretty sharp. They they can chocolates, they can advance courses and stuff, and I like shop, and I wasn't too interested in anything that of going on to school, but all my buddies are going to, to off to college. Well, what are you going to do, man? I said, what are you going to do to my brother Dick? He said, well, I want to be a carpenter. He said, I'll hire uncle's carpenter, and I, I think I'd, I'd like to do that. So I decided to, he would be a carpenter. So he started to apprentice carpenters where you had to go to school, and actually our uncle who was out. Well, the carpenter was teaching that school too, so that was kind of nice for Dick to have his uncle teach him. And I said, "Well, I think I'll go out to Northern Illinois State Teachers College." So I went out there, and of course, I was never very good in English, and you had to take an English class. And I remember taking the English class, and the professor said, "You know, Bob, you're a pretty nice guy, but you don't know a darn thing about English, do you?" And I had to agree with him, but I didn't. But I had a couple of girlfriends that were going there, and I'd have them do some of my work for me. And for some unknown reason, that guy would still, you know, get this punctuation isn't right here, this spelling isn't right. So I never did very well in that English course. And uh, then um, there's two other guys, one my that I graduated with, and another guy ahead of me says, oh, I... We're going to get drafted pretty soon. You know that, don't you? I said, for all. Yeah. So, well, 
we can go in as a reservist and then instead of going for four years to the Navy, we can go in for two years instead. What do you think? And I, my brother and I talked to my dad, and he said, well, it's probably better than going in the Army because if you go to the Air Force or the Navy, at least you get three squares and you get a roof over your head. So we decided, okay, well, we'll join the Navy. So can I join the Navy and these other two guys who going through Great Lakes training up at Prey Lakes. In February of 56, I think, we would have went in. And they take a GCT test, I think. I don't remember if that's the exact name of it. But anyway, take a test to evaluate, you know, what you could do and what you can't do. And they said, well, to you guys who are just going in for two years, you're not going to get any schooling. We're going to waste time and money on you. Uh, so, you know, we'll tell you the basics, which we did. And then they said, you're going to be on a ship out of Newport, Rhode Island called the USS Stockham, which was a World World War II destroyer. And I said to my brother, do you want to be on the same ship? And he said, no, I don't think I care. You know? I said, well, I do. Let's be on the same ship. So anyway, my brother and I were on the same ship out of, of Newport, Rhode Island. And we had never been east. We'd never, you know, been fishing up to Canada with my parents and you know, well, and two in nineteen fifty three there was a world jamboree in Santa Ana, California. So my brother and I and several scouters from the Fox Valley area went to the jamboree in Santa Ana. So that was fantastic. I know I lost the lost the grid here a little bit because but I forgot about that. And scouting was a big thing too for us. Uh, a lot of guys went through Cup Scouts, but not everybody went to Boy Scouts, but we had some wonderful leaders and some really great leaders who took us places on Lincoln Trail hikes and all kinds of different things. So anyway, uh, scouting uh, became a big thing in, in our lives. But then getting back to service, um, Dick was put in the show, it's called ship fitters, so that's as close as you get to a carpenter on a metal ship which is if, if they had any problems with leakage, then that was, he was, he was in damage control to help repair that. And they said to you, well, you can go down the engine room and uh, you can just, you know, have a wonderful time and all the grease and stuff. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, is this what I signed up for? Well, too, yeah. When you went aboard ship, never being aboard ship, where, where are you asleep? Where do you, you know, well, that back then bunk stacked in a one after the other about three high, and there was probably two and a half foot or three feet between the bunks. Underneath your bunks, you had a locker, which was big enough just to put your clothes in. And, uh, you know, the bottom guy, if he was in sleeping in that locker and the guy needed, or sleeping in his bunk and the guy needed to get into that locker, he just took you and changed you up. So you were on an angle, then he could get in for the stuff and get out and then drop you down. So anyway, I'm saying, you know, I don't know. Some guys, I'm not, I objected to tattoos, but some guys are full of tattoos and stuff. And, yeah, it was just totally a different way of life. And uh, eventually you would have to, they call it do, mess hall duty. 
which was what I had to do was actually go to the kitchen, take the um, food to the chief petty officers, which were in a little dining room. And I got talking to the guy who was a doctor aboard, and he said, why don't you like to work for me? I said, well, that'd be great. And he said, well, if you're going home on leave, he said, when you come back, he said, I'll talk with the captain, I'll check your records and, and see, you know, if I think he'd be suited for the job. So anyway, the last part of my duty, I was worked for this doctor who was not a full-fledged doctor by any means. He had taken some medical training, even a World War II guy, so... There's a lot of you know, to other people aboard ships. So if anything real serious came along, you you would transfer him off to another ship or to another port. So I we got to go quite a few places. Got to go to France. Got to go to Spain. Got to go to Bermuda. Well, that part was you know nice, but I, I could tell I was not. And it's from there that in my career. So anyway, uh, my brother and I both got out, drove home. We didn't have to put in our full two years, actually. But we, we had joined in February, and this was just before Christmas. And they said, you know, there's no sense, but it was a handful of us guys were going to get out. And why don't we let these guys out early and can go home? So... My brother and I surprised by our mom and dad and drove home just before Christmas. They thought we were working on people for Christmas. And uh, anyway, that ended our, our career. So I wanted to ask to talk my dad. And I said, you know, you had this jewelry store in St. Charles, and you went to Elgin Lashwickers College. I said, how was it? I said, I, I enjoyed it. I like working with my hands. And... Uh, I said, well, you need somebody to work with you. And he said, well, I don't know if we got enough repair work for two. And he said, I think I'll learn how to repair electric razors and we'll probably be all right then if you want to start working or go to Watchmakers College. So I said, yeah, no, I think I will. So I went to Watchmakers College, learned how to repair watches. I didn't take hand engraving, but I did clock repair and fixing other things. Then started working for my dad. And then Dick said that, you know, it was really kind of slow times for carpenters in those, in those days. He'd work in the summer, but long winter time, he'd get laid out usually for a month or two. So he decided to come up there too. So he went to the Bachelors College, well, then he graduated. And then uh, my dad said, well, he'll know, Dix, you know, you know, this is hard enough for two families. I only mean support three. Anyway, he and his wife went to California and his wife didn't like it out there. So they came back and my dad said, well, it's just for Christmas. He said, maybe we can keep it, you know, through Christmas, but after that, you're going to have to look for jobs someplace else. Christmas came and went 25 years later. <laughs> he decided to open up a store in Geneva. In the meantime, we got to work with our parents that thoroughly enjoyed it. Then it was a small store, you know, we didn't have a lot of inventory, and my dad was not a, a real up and becoming entrepreneur, and he just, you know, kind of from day to day, and finally my brother and I would say, you know, hey, we need a little more merchandise, you know, the, if you're going to succeed, we got to, you know, we don't want to repair just all our life for us, being sales too, so it, it materialized, so, so that became 
you know, halfway decent store and uh, then Baker's, Mr. Baker was running to my dad and then he passed away and then he ran in from the Norris's and then they decided to sell it. And just before that, some of the businessmen from St. Charles were building a store a block south of the Hotel Baker. And Vasco Lencioni, the guy that toned Blue Goose, was a real good friend of my dad's. He said, I know that I touch you. Set it right in for me. Why don't you buy it? You know, portion of this building and had a store there. So that's what my dad did. And uh, he was, I think, about 60 at the time. So he was starting to get up in age. And, you know, anyway, we moved to a block south into our new store. I think in 1972, uh, stayed there for until the city of St. Charles said, well, this whole area through here, even though ours was a new store, but there's a hodgepodge of different stores down on First Street there. And it was actually first in Walnut was where our store was. Um, we had the end, end piece. In the middle was place that was rented out to a, a lady's dress shop and the other end was Gunther who sold men's clothing store that was all under one roof but each of us owned a different portion and finally Vasco took my dad into buying the, the corner store instead of renting it from him and so that's where we stayed until the city came along and said well we're going to condemn all this property through here and uh even though it was a nice store, and Dreesen was a big contractor from St. Charles who built it, and it was everything we had wanted. And the uh, city came around and says, well, we'll have to relocate you. We said, well, we've only been two places in St. Charles in 56 years. We've been in the Hotel Baker, and we've been here, and we designed this the way we wanted it. They said, well, that's the end, unless you want to move to some other place. And I, I had turned 60, and I thought, well, you know, I was going to rent the place out eventually I thought and have you know but in the meantime my brother would be Geneva and had a store down there so it wasn't going to happen because the city was going to take it so they did but they offered us a pretty nice package and so that ended my working career so Bob I want to conclude by asking you you live a long life you work very hard and you know, speaking to your descendants a hundred from years from now or young people in general, what what do you, what values or life lessons would you think are important no matter what era they'd live in? Well, there's there's so many good things that I could talk about, but I think a couple of things that come to my mind is, you know, I do unto others as you would have done unto you. And be honest in everything, I think if you have a strong faith, that helps. And don't have a goal in life for just money. Because, we have tried to make a little joke out of this. There's only one thing poverty can't buy, and that's money. Other than that, you know, as we go along in life, let's try and be, we'll be cheerful and Let's treat other people like you'd like to be treated. So, so many great men have said so many great things for me that I'd like to have a list to like to go through and probably say some of those things, but I don't even remember some of those things. But anyway, 
I think I probably said the best that I know what to say. Thank you for listening to the St. Charles History Chronicle podcast. This content is copyright 2023, St. Charles History Museum, all rights reserved. Additional information on this episode and other podcast episodes is available at stcmuseum.org forward slash podcast.